0: Welcome back to the Julie Norman Show, a podcast on current affairs, ethics, and politics with a focus on ordinary people doing interesting or insightful work across these areas in their communities and around the world. Today's topic is Be the Change, and we're going to be speaking with Liz Griffith. Liz is a good friend from Belfast, Northern Ireland, or joining us from Belfast, Northern Ireland. And in one of our previous episodes, our, our title was They Call Us and We Go. And we talked about um, moral obligation and stepping up in times of crisis. Liz, Liz doesn't even wait to be called. She just goes. Like, for as long as I have known Liz, she just goes. She doesn't even wait for the call. And she definitely doesn't wait for a crisis. Uh, Liz has a day job in the human rights sector. But I wanted to have her on the show to hear more about the voluntary work That she does with various community organizations in Belfast, um, including a local food bank. And I wanted to speak to her about this during this current time, especially because just food banks across the UK, across the US are really just facing exponential uh, demand and are having exponentially less supply. So I wanted to get her take on that. I also wanted to talk with her about her work with a group in Belfast that is a sort of club that's made up largely of refugees, migrants, asylum seekers. And again, just kind of get a take from Liz on how you have some individuals in, within that community are experiencing, again, this current situation, what are the needs that people are facing that are not often thought about and finally, we'll chat a little bit about Liz's work with um, Flourish, which is Northern Ireland's organization to assist victims of human trafficking. So we, we will touch on that a little bit as well. Um, I wanted to hear from Liz about her experiences and insights on this kind of community work during uh, COVID-19 or during Corona, but also just in general, um, you know, what motivates someone to do stuff like this? How do you avoid Um, compassion fatigue. And one thing I wanted to ask Liz, too, is how does she in particular like find a way of doing this work that avoids what I see as a very common dynamic of of charity, which is not a bad thing, but sometimes creates a a sort of a unidirectional dynamic with um, a giver and recipients and kind of lines between those. And and Liz, I think, really uh, manages to push back at that and have a much more inclusive and again just very community kind of feeling when she does community work and I want to chat with her a bit more about how she does that and why that is important. So Liz Griffith welcome to the podcast. Hi Julie and thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) Well I just I just attempted to introduce you Liz but can you like how do you describe yourself and the community work that you do?
1: Well I guess over the years you know I was see myself as a community worker or just somebody who's sort of
0: involved in various communities. Just tell us a little bit about what got you interested in doing this kind of work. How did you first get started in working with community organisations?
1: Well, I've lived in Belfast now for about 12 years and my involvement with the Belfast Friendship Club um, I'm sometimes a little bit embarrassed to say how it began, because I first came across a leaflet shortly after I arrived in Belfast, and I came across this leaflet advertising the Belfast Friendship Club. And at the time, I was working for a law centre which um, dealt with all sorts of people, you know, undergoing quite uh, <laughs> you know difficult times in their life. Lots of vulnerable clients, asylum seekers, refugees, victims of trafficking. And I saw this leaflet and I thought to myself, oh, you know, this could be useful for some of our clients. I, I'll go along myself, check it out. And then, you know, perhaps we can refer people to it.
0: And, and can I stop you, Liz, and just ask, what did the leaflet say? Like what, what caught your eye on it?
1: Oh, it was a very basic leaflet. Um, I think there was a picture of a sunflower on it, something, something cheerful. I'm sure this leaflet had been put together on a shoestring budget, and it just said something like, um, um, you know, a, a friendly welcome for folks who are new to Belfast, something like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I went along, um, you know, kind of expecting that I might be go there for you know one or two evenings and then send others, you know, in that direction. And instead, um, I've stayed. And, you know, I've loved it and it's become a really significant part of my life. And as I say, I feel a little bit sheepish, but perhaps initially I had kind of a slightly patronizing view that I kind of thought this might be good for other people, um, you know, without acknowledging, well, it might be good for me too.
0: And what is the Belfast Friendship Club for people who aren't from Belfast or who aren't familiar with it?
1: Yeah, so Belfast Friendship Club is a kind of deceptively simple idea and concept in that we meet um, every week on a Thursday evening between seven and nine in the evening, and we meet in a part of Belfast which is um, near the university. It's very mixed part of Belfast, which is important given it being a you know a post-conflict society, and it's a part of Belfast where there is um, much more diversity than other parts. And really, people just come together and spend two hours, that's all it is, spend two hours of their lives together. And, you know, sometimes there might be all of 10, 15 people there, and then you can have a really good chat with people. Other times, there's a standing room only, and we've, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 people Mm. all ram into this small little cafe. And we... Yeah, have a chat basically. <laughs> and
0: and why did you think it might be for other people and not for you? And I guess what kept you going back? Oh well,
1: you know, I I guess initially, you know, when I when I saw it, it you know, it said something about um, you know being a, a a safe space, you know, and I you know never really occurred to me that uh, you know I would. I could benefit from it. I think uh, perhaps having worked in the advice sector, you know, you're you're <laughs> constantly thinking about things that might be good for other people, or you know, you would benefit from this, you know, that kind of attitude. But when I arrived, um, I, I guess I, you know, experienced something that that, um, you know, spoke to me, and. I recall at about a similar time in my life having a conversation with a, with a friend of mine and a woman who I would consider very wise indeed. And she took me aside and she said, Liz, I'm a couple of years older than you. And let me share, you know, my um, words of wisdom, I guess, although she wouldn't have framed it like that. And she said, you know, you have a choice in life whether you want to spend your time rallying against things. So do you rally against nuclear weapons and rally against wars and rally against uh, the meat industry? Or, you know, do you throw your energies into something positive, into, you know, something where friendships can grow and solidarity can flourish? And that's what I decided to do. I took her advice, essentially.
0: And. Would you have put yourself in the, the former camp before?
1: Um, yeah, I was more of a, you know, a, a rallier against things. And I still am. I mean, don't get me <laughs> wrong. I love to go and, you know, um, wave a flag and stamp my feet and bang a tambourine. Um, I'm all for that, too. But I think for me, I can see that, you know, it, it was the right time for me in my life to be involved in something you know that you know, the, the focus was on positivity of bringing people together um, it, rather than protest
0: do you think it's hard for activists to to find that that space or that bridge and to toggle between those two approaches um,
1: yeah I, I suppose and you know the you know there have been times I friends I've you know acquaintances that you know people who that have my in my life has uh, crossed their paths at different times and I you know there's there's times that I think oh maybe I should be out chaining myself to things and you know I have done a little bit of that in the past but um you know now I kind of see maybe my role is is uh, it's here it's in this cafe
0: it's in the and you mentioned before Liz that that many members of the Belfast Friendship Club, or people who attend are those who have come to Belfast and to the UK from other places. So um, some who might be considered migrants or um, refugees, asylum seekers. So what what does that space mean for for those communities, and what are yeah why is a space like that important for for those communities and maybe what kind of challenges are there right now with that space presumably being unavailable uh, during Corona? Yeah, well, I think over the
1: years, the Belfast Friendship Club and that space that it created, you know, just once, you know, one night a week, it's rather, um, you know, in some ways it's fairly modest, but, you know, that space aims to create a a safe space and you know i think that's so important for people you know people who can come and be part of something without experiencing judgment and that's what we try to do and i think that is just as valuable for an an asylum seeker as it is for um, an international student as it is for a local person as it is for um someone who's trans and has, you know, struggled to find a place where they, where they don't feel judged. And that's um, really, you know, what we, what we try and do. Um, and Julie, if I could just share, like, a, a, a lovely moment. Um, shortly before the lockdown, um, early, actually it was before Christmas, just before Christmas, we had um, a, a, a young Kurdish man arrive and it was his first night at the Belfast Friendship Club, and he'd only, you know, recently arrived in, um, in Ireland. And I met him and we started talking. And a couple of minutes later, I saw that he was crying. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, <laughs> what, what, what's happening here? And he said to me, um, you know, I, I feel so welcome. He said to me, he, he explained a little bit of the arduous journey that he had made from Syria, you know, across the Mediterranean on one of those awful boats and across Europe. And the, you know, the welcome that he, you know, received at the Friendship Club actually moved into tears because he faced so much hostility. And, you know, I was I was really humbled by that moment. And I thought, you know, this is what you know, this is what we're here to do. This is this is what we're what we're trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so um and of course you, you know, you asked there about the coronavirus and you know how that is impacting things. You know, we were obviously we had to close our doors and that was very difficult for us to. Do. I mean, of course we we had to, there was no option and it's the first time in you know it's been going now more than 10 years and like we never close our doors we close once a year over christmas and that like that is it we're there relentlessly so it's a, it's a, it's kind of a shock to to me and, and others who are you know kind of kind of intimately involved in in the club. that uh, we're feeling a little bereft
0: and, and we talked a little bit, too, about the fact that, you know, for many of our work spaces or social networks or what have you, uh, a lot of us are having Zoom meetups or, you know, other kinds of online engagements that certainly don't replace real life, but are, are something to kind of get us through this time. But with, you know, a lot of communities who are involved in the Friendship Club, you know, that kind of, that kind of meetup is probably not that feasible, I would imagine.
1: No, and um, we, w- we were pretty quick. I have to say I'm very proud of my, um, my colleagues at the Friendship Club. There's a, there's a group of us, a, um, a group of us who are a kind of make up the steering group that sounds rather grandly tight. <laughs> but we're, you know, we're just regular people, but we're, we're a good mix of people. And we swung into action pretty quickly, and we've established, um, for example, an online uh, fitness class that is led by a Sri Lankan refugee that could give Mr. Motivator a run for his money. <laughs> <laughs> um, you might not know who Mr. Motivator is. I can't but... <laughs> say I do.
0: He sounds very really motivating.
1: Um, he's, he's, he's very enthusiastic. To put it that way. We have um, um, little. We have a craft table that usually meets at the friendship club, and so we're now having a virtual craft session a craft table. So for example, this week the craft activity is going to be led by um, a man from Tibet and he's going to be leading a tutorial on how to make a, a face mask uh, coronavirus. Oh, yes. um, we have a mindfulness session. we have our own um, podcast which which is awesome. Um, um, so we, we have all sorts of activities which you know to some extent we you know we're, we're trying to um, compensate if, if we can uh, for you know the lack of the friendship club um, but of course like the, one of the first obstacles you know that we we recognize is that for a lot of our members you know they they don't have um, a, a, you know a fancy phone and they certainly don't have phone credit the public libraries are closed you know when all the public spaces then there's no wifi so um, out of all those really interesting little initiatives that we're involved with, I'm involved in the most boring of all, which is um, d- drawing up a spreadsheet, and I'm busy trying to um, get phone credit out to our members who need it, with the hope that they can then participate in all the on- online activities.
0: Mm-hmm. So, which I thought uh, was so important, Liz, and I was just so glad when you like mentioned this and that You know, you said it's probably the most boring part, but probably the most essential and crucial for making the other ones possible and for people to be able to engage with them at all is uh, this more kind of, you know, stuff that you have to do behind the scenes just to make things like this work.
1: You know, we've learned at the Friendship Club over the years is to think really carefully about being inclusive and to think about our membership. (laughs) There is no point us coming up with wonderful craft tutorials if our members can't access them.
0: You are listening to The Julie Norman Show. I know lately you've been doing stuff with the food bank and... You know, like I said before, you I think anyone who's kind of following some of the, the situations right now, very, very aware of the fact that food banks are, are struggling a lot uh, across the UK, across uh, most places where they operate. And I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more to that. With First, is what do food banks do usually? And then what, what are some of the challenges you're seeing now? Yeah,
1: so, um, I mean sad to say that there are many food banks in you know even just in this one city in Belfast and you know as much as I'm proud to be you know to, to volunteer with the food bank obviously they it shouldn't exist Sure, <laughs> it's weird to be volunteering in something that like it's grotesque as a concept but uh there we are um and like the, you know, the, the issue, um, the food bank that I'm involved with is specifically distributing food to people who are in the asylum system and refugees. Like, so it was kind of recognizing that particularly at the beginning of the lockdown, you know, the shelves, the supermarket shelves were, were empty, as you yeah. know, sort of, you know, a couple of apocalyptic type days. There was nothing on the shelves. And so you were pretty much obliged to buy whatever you could, you know, get your hands on. Yeah. Um, People in the asylum system here are receiving a maximum of 36 pounds a week, Mm -hmm. you know, which is peanuts. And, you know, that money is is definitely not enough when you've no choice left in the shop and, you know, the value options have gone, the economy versions have gone. So um, the food bank. Was um, um, a, a project came up. Uh, a number of organisations working in kind of in support of the refugee community came together um, to, like you know, get this um, food bank up and running,
0: which is really just for the duration of the crisis we find ourselves in. And as when you said, like that food banks have a kind of a grotesque dynamic to them. Can you say more about that and why, obviously, why they shouldn't exist in the sense that we shouldn't have. Uh, so many people who are food insecure but can you say a bit more about about how you phrase that
1: yeah um, I suppose the way that I would see it is you know the, the fact that we have food banks you know tells us something about the society we live in and the lack of social justice like i I really don't think you know it's, it's right that you know we're living in an industrialized um, nation. Um, there's plenty of money floating around, um, you know, for, for some issues. And the fact that we have people and people with families queuing up to get a box of tinned food, I think is a damning indictment on our lack of social protection for people. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I really, I really don't like it. And and I, I know food banks uh, and the people who are involved with them, you know, go out of their way to try and, um, you know, remove the stigma and, you know, not judge people who, who attend them and you know, try and make them as a jovial experience as possible. But it's hard to get around the fact that, you know, you're feeding people who are otherwise going to go hungry and I'm sure it's no fun for the people who are going to collect the boxes however, however you package it
0: yeah yeah of course um and I, I want to ask you more about flourish in a minute but I, let's just stay on this point for a minute too with because the, the food by bank dynamic is one where you know I think you just kind of said it like it's hard for people to avoid a sense of stigma there's very much a clear like people who are there as volunteers and providers and people who are there as recipients Um, and so it's I'm just wondering how you are kind of able to overcome that dynamic in most of the work that you do and just again kind of pushing back a little bit at that notion of quote-unquote charity and trying to have something that's a bit more integrative of all the people involved rather than kind of a giver recipient dynamic and, and like I said I, th- I feel like you you do that very well and I was just wanted you could speak a little bit more on that and how you do that and why it's important
1: well I think in the you know when it comes to delivering boxes of food there's no getting around it you know I'm the person with the box of food and you're the person that would be hungry if it weren't for me and my box of food and um you know I I I, I I don't like it if, if I'm <laughs> honest um to be um driving around Belfast I'm lucky enough to have access to a car and uh, I get my route I'm really just a lowly uh, delivery person then. that's you know I just get a list of people um and their addresses and their phone numbers and I, I drive around and I you know um leave off the boxes <laughs> and you know that's pretty much uh, my job done but you know, I do try obviously to have a, a, a little chat with people and, um, you know, Belfast is a relatively small space and, uh, you know, quite a few of the people that I'm delivering to are people who are either have, you know, who come to the Friendship Club or have come to the Friendship Club. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're able to have a little bit of a chat um, and, you know, that, you know, that's really, it's lovely and it it's, kind of important for me too so that I don't see you know the people who I'm delivering to as being recipients of charity.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: for example last week when I was out delivering um, I was taking the food to a to a Chinese lady but a Georgian lady opened the door of this uh, shared accommodation and this woman I haven't seen her for a while um, but she told me that um, she's pretty busy these days because she's a, fab- a fabulous cook <laughs> she is spending her days volunteering um, in a local health center and she goes in to cook food for the doctors for all the health staff um, and I just thought you know that, that's amazing it's wonderful that she has you know just decided to do this and, you know a lot of the stories that we are seeing in the media are about you know, the heroes of coronavirus. You know, it's not people like her who are in the press. Um, and so it really touched me to think that, that she's doing that. And this is a woman who has very little herself. But, yeah, to go back to your question, I think it's really hard to avoid that kind of, um, you know, um, one-sided uh, relationship when it comes to handing out food. I guess one of the, the ways that, you know, as a project, uh, we've tried to address that, um, and when I say we, I, I really don't have much to do with this, um, but the, you know, um, one of the lead partners is the, the refugee community organisation here, the, the umbrella um, group for, for refugee community organisation. And so people who are, you know, directly involved in um, drawing, deciding who gets the food um, you know they are refugees, and they're you know involved in every stage along the way. So I think that's really helpful.
0: We've been talking about the food bank dynamic, but I think it circles back to what you said about the friendship club too, where it's right. Where it's, it, that sense of just community is so key. I think in a lot of what you do and the approach to it, and 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 Belfast as a city, I think um, you know, fosters that in, in some pockets in some ways, but really just that. the root of community that sense of like commonality and and finding that between people in some way that it's like we're all here in this even though you know we're all coming out from different places but we're all in this room together or this virtual space together and uh, kind of what can we do with that
1: yeah Um, and you know julie over the years we have been like i I see it ourselves we've been increasingly protective of that of the space i mean we, we we say we try and create a space a safe space but it's often about holding that space
0: Mm. and
1: so, for example you know over the years we've had lots of very well-meaning well-intended people who come and say things like you know um, I can um, you know I can donate clothes I can donate this I could do this um, I could I could lead an advice session you know um, and you know over the years we've realized well hang on a minute the moment you turn something into an advice session, you know, <laughs> then you have people who are able to give advice and those who are supposed to be listening to the yeah. advice.
0: I'll pivot just for, for kind of the last little point on and the work that you do with Flourish, which is, again, a Northern Ireland's organization to assist victims of human trafficking. And I think it, you know, surprises people that, it surprised me at least initially that, that there needed to be an organization like that, that there was enough of an issue of human trafficking in a place like Northern Ireland and probably anywhere that any of us are are living. I'm obviously in London now and, you know, uh, from the US. I mean, but but, but not really being aware that, um, yeah, that there needed to be services in, you know, places like Belfast and everywhere else. And so I was wondering if you could just say more about, yeah, about your work there, what kind of cases you see, what, what you do to support victims, um, and, and if that community or issue has been affected in any particular way in this current crisis and moment.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I kind of, as you say, I, I, I share your, you know, like, dismay and, and shock, you know, that human trafficking is happening in Belfast, but sadly, it you know happens everywhere. And every year, there's something between the region of thirty to sixty um, potential victims of trafficking identified um, in Northern Ireland, and of course, yeah. you know many more in the south and, in, and across in GB. And people, you know, the victims come from come from everywhere. I mean, every possible country you can think of, um, mm-hmm. and I guess. This um, organization Flourish that um, I have the privilege to be involved with um, on the board, Uh, what Flourish do, uh, I mean, I'm biased, but, you know, I think it's really a very clever and interesting model because um, human trafficking and, you know, modern day slavery, um, it's in the press a lot and rightly so. And, you know, we we welcome the media's interest. Mm -hmm. Sure, you know the emphasis seems to be on the initial, you know, the the initial um, moment when the police beat down the door of the brothel and you know rescue the women, or you know when men are found on fishing boats. And, yeah, you know, people are arrested and you know uh, victims are taken off to a safe house. Um, and I guess where flourish steps in is once saw that initial flurry of activity has, has come to an end um, and I guess what what Flourish tries to do is uh, help people rebuild their lives and flourish ultimately mm-hmm. as um, difficult as it is to even imagine that someone could flourish after having been enslaved and um, and certainly at the moment um, I was quite struck to you know the realization that for some of our um some of the, the clients of flourish you know the lockdown is is just horrific in a way that you know is unthinkable for me you know the the lockdown even calling it a lockdown you know for people for women who have been locked in mm. been locked into places of Servitude, places of sexual exploitation, um, and so the feeling of, um, you know, the the lockdown has been very difficult for, um, some of our clients in particular. Um, Mm So that's very distressing, and it's distressing for the the volunteers. Um, Flourish is, um, only got a very small handful of paid staff, and mo, you know, the huge number of excellent committed volunteers and they're doing their best to keep in contact with flourish clients during the lockdown and just try and keep their spirits up yeah Um, and but it's difficult for people who you know are suffering ptsd um and you know for whom the lockdown is is just incredibly difficult And it's it's put a lot of things on hold as well, Julie, as you can you can probably imagine. So, you know, people are on waiting lists to see various specialists, and of course, that's not happening. Court cases, um, there's a big court case that has been running for a while, and that's suspended. And you know, the um, people you know wanting to give evidence against perpetrators, and you know, all of all of that, everything has sort of, um, and for, for some people in particular um, some, some women in particular, it's
0: been a really, really, really difficult time. And Liz, with, with Flourish and then with, um, you know, some of the other things we've been talking about, I guess, have you, have you ever experienced that concept of like compassion fatigue? I mean, you work with a lot of different groups, a lot of people who are, um, have been or are still going through, you know, really difficult stuff and you kind of toggle between it in your in your quote-unquote your downtime after dealing with human rights stuff on another level during your work days and I was wondering is is that has that ever been an issue for you and if so how have you avoided it or prevented or overcome that Hmm. well I think I'm really fortunate
1: to be surrounded by such wonderful people you know people who I really admire and really respect who are doing this work and have been doing this work for a very long time so that definitely helps. um, um I I won't say that before I got involved in the Belfast Friendship Club when I was still more in rallying mode <laughs> then I think compassion fatigue was perhaps um more of an issue then mm. um you know, when I used to work um, as a refugee caseworker and you know, running asylum cases and deportation cases, I could see um, the I, I could see how compassion fatigue could could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in in this context here in Belfast, um, no, I'd, I I I'm, I'm not worried about it, and I and I, and I think compassion fatigue um, is perhaps more likely in a in a situation where one person is compassionate towards another Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what I would like to think that you know through things like the Belfast Friendship Club it's a space for you know I I hope we're all compassionate beings when we're there um and we I guess I'm not articulating this very well but um because we we try so hard to to um, minimise the you know the dynamics of the, the who have and the who have not, I think that also minimises to some to some extent the risk of um, compassion fatigue, mm. because we're. I think I'd like to think we're, we're all identifying with each other in, in, in so many ways. And it's sort of a, a web <laughs> um, that, you know, to, to some extent, you know, it, it's like a boy. It keeps you afloat. Mm-hmm. It's quite remarkable. Um,
0: and Liz, maybe on that note, we'll, we'll, we'll start wrapping things up because I know we've been chatting for a while. And usually towards the end, I just ask people if there are any um any books articles podcasts anything that they've read heard recently that they would recommend either related to stuff we've been talking about or just something that made an impact on you and you think others should uh, check out
1: (laughs) well um like others i've um, benefited from the lockdown and i've been able to sit down and have time to read which has been quite lovely and I've uh, just this weekend finished a, a book that a friend, good friend, gave to me called um, I Didn't Do It For You. And it's a, a book by a journalist called Mikela Wrong. And it's all about Eritrea. Mm. Um, and I mean, it doesn't sound very jolly on the front. <laughs> how, so, um, how the world used and abused a small African na- nation. Um, but um, it was fascinating. And I was so disappointed when I came to the end. And I, I got to the end on Saturday evening and I felt like I was in a little daze for the, you know, the, for the rest of the evening. You know when you, you're just so caught up in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what struck me is just like my ignorance on the topic and uh, just, just how um, you know, the, <laughs> the colonial powers played like, successively screwed over this, this small nation of
0: Eritrea basically <laughs> so um,
1: yeah I'm afraid not the most cheerful book that I could be recommending but it was a great read through the lockdown all
0: right it's, and I didn't do it for you is the name
1: I didn't do it for you
0: yeah okay, okay. Me. so I'll try and link to that then in the show notes as well um, well thank you so much Liz thank you for joining us today and Good luck to you and all the communities in Belfast that um, that you're engaging with and interacting with. And we uh, hope you all stay well and that the Belfast Friendship Club can meet in person again soon.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much, Julie.
0: Uh, once again, you've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. You can subscribe to get our latest episodes on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Be kind, stay well, take care of each other, and please join us next time.